Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Listeners, is that you? There you are. What's cooking good looking is what I'm going to say to you, listeners. All's well over here, reclining on my kitchen bench situation. It's got a cushion, so I'm pretty comfy. Now then, I've got a fact for you listeners from my reclining sofa position. Today is a very important day. It marks 18 years since the repeal of Section 28. What was Section 28, I hear you ask? It was something introduced by the Thatcher government in 1988, and Section 28 prohibited the intentional promotion of homosexuality by local authorities and schools. So you couldn't teach homosexuality in schools. And it was such a terrible bit of legislation, which is the reason why I was never told that there was such thing as gay people in school and beyond why many of you listening have said that. And so many of you write in and say part of what was quite distressing about school is that it wasn't taught and very beautiful stories I've heard from some of you about little tacit Tom Allen spoke about actually little tacit nods from teachers knowing that they couldn't teach you about gayness but they wanted you to know nonetheless that they knew that you were. One of the people who led the campaign that means we have this anniversary of it being repealed is Lord Michael Cashman and he is our guest today. He was at the forefront of the campaign because he was a huge star at the time. He was in EastEnders. He also went on to do many, many other things, including founding Stonewall. And The Guardian, in fact, did an article about him saying, the man who changed the world. Quite honestly, Michael Cashman is one of those people who has been there at so many key pivotal moments for the LGBTQ plus community. Michael shot to fame, as they say, as the first gay kiss playing Colin in EastEnders. Went on to make it his business to fight Section 28. He founded Stonewall, which has obviously gone from strength to strength. Then he was very key in lobbying people like Tony Blair to allow for civil partnerships. And in fact, you know, he... Michael, as he speaks about in the interview, he actually educated the Queen on why civil partnership was a good thing. You know, the Queen, big part of the Labour Party. Now he's a Lord in the House of Lords fighting for our rights with some dusty old folk. I'll tell you that much, I bet. Running through all of this is the thread of this wonderful, wonderful man who he was married to, Paul. And he talks about Paul quite a lot in the interview, actually, like he's referred to throughout. And it was the love of his life. And he, Michael has just always been at the forefront of progression, inclusion and love. And I adore him. And so we are very lucky to have him. He's written a book, a memoir, basically called One of Them. He's great mates with Ian McKellen as well. So he's a laugh, let me tell you. Um, So I'm very excited for you to hear this. I want to know what you think of this interview. I want to know what you think of everything, including my you know relaxed presenting style 
laying down on my couch here. If you want to get in touch, it's hello at homosapienspodcast.com, at homosapiens on Instagram, Facebook, Pigeon. And then please, would you do us the honour of going over to Apple Podcasts, writing us a review, rating us if you rate us. We give people t-shirts who do it when they win review of the week. And if you want to buy one at time of print, proceeds going to the Albert Kennedy Trust. It's everpress.com forward slash homo sapiens. You can get yourself a sweater. Love it. Wear mine all the time. Get yourself a t-shirt. Love it. Wear mine all the time. Please send us pictures of you wearing your t-shirts once they arrive with you. Now then, let's have a look at emails. A deluge of very relevant emails to today, actually. So first one, Hamish. Hamish writes, Hi Chris, I'm writing a letter to my old high school to let the headmaster head person know how difficult it was to be there as a young gay man in the 1990s. You see, what we're talking about here, Hamish, is section 28, which is what Michael, who we're going to talk to in a minute, got repealed with the help of others. It takes a village. I thought it would be therapeutic for me, but also good education for my old school to realise how many LGBTQ plus former pupils have had a hard time. My intention is to not only have teachers understand LGBTQ plus issues, but also ensure they don't make the mistakes with current pupil intakes. However, more importantly, perhaps we can start an LGBTQ plus avalanche. If all LGBTQI people did this together, we'd surely start a revelation and revolution in headpersons schools. What do you think? Is this a move we can coordinate through the podcast? I haven't sent my letter yet, but I can let you know what happens and we can take it from there. Let me know. Hamish. Well, Hamish, thank you very much for your message. Listeners, if you want to write your letter to your old headmaster, please let us know. Do we want to start a revelation slash a revolution? Only you can tell me. I think it's really interesting, actually, because obviously I went to school, as I was saying a second ago, in a time where I was not allowed to be taught to be gay. And one thing I've spoken about before here on the podcast is that there was, I was told by one of the teachers that there was a wager like a bet in the staff room as to whether I was gay or not. And I've always thought that's a bit rubbish because I was really struggling. I I sort of felt like I didn't mind people, you know, not knowing whether I was gay or not, because maybe I considered that my home life and I was just there to get schooled, you know, with a bit of pottery thrown in. But when I found out that they were talking about it in the staff room as a sort of source of entertainment... I've got to say it really upset me because nobody ever came up to me and said, are you okay? Um, And, you know, they knew that there had been people who had had the shit kicked out of them at school for being gay. So what would I like to say to my headmaster, I suppose, is what I'm thinking about what you're saying, Hamish. To be honest, I can't even remember who he was. Um, But I know for a fact, many moons ago, we did have a wonderful teacher who used to teach at my school. And we had a really lovely, it was one of our meet the listener sections, a really lovely chat about him being a teacher at my old school now, and how he's a gay man, and he's teaching in this beautiful way about inclusivity and diversity. And, you know, it's a very, very different place. But the people who were running my school at that time, you know, on the whole, obviously, there was Section 28. They weren't allowed to teach about homosexuality. But I think it was a society-wide thing. It was considered something you didn't speak about. And there was a load of shame attached to that. And, you know, what would I like to say to that headmaster? I would love to say that your job is to look after the kids growing up here. And it's not 
to turn them into something. I think that's what's really interesting about school. I'm not here to be turned into something that you deem to be the right way to live. You're there to observe all different types of life, all different types of people in their huge variety and diversity, help them grow into that best version of themselves, support them, love them, nourish them, and don't ever let them feel shame for any part of themselves. And it was very establishment, the school I went to, and there's just no way they were thinking like that. But you know what I'm really pleased to hear is that when we spoke to that teacher who does teach at my school now, I am thrilled to hear that he's doing good work and there'll be kids out there who are starting to realise elements of their sexuality or gender identity and they feel that school is a place that they can be nurtured and not somewhere. They're going to get the shit kicked out of them, which is pretty much what it was like when I was there. I'm going to read another message. We had a lovely listener from the other end of the scale talking about what a wonderful teacher they had. So I posted a question. I can't remember what the question was now on Instagram. Oh, I think it was... um suggestions for guests that was it and this person has written back saying I've been listening to this podcast since I was in year 10 and I'm now my first year of university so quite a while I love that I love that you've been listening all that time while you're all the way through school year 10 is 14 years old right I had a turbulent time during these years and my old geography teacher told me about this podcast He's an openly gay man at my school, although receiving some backlash he did and still does all he can to make the school as safe and welcoming as possible to all students LGBTQ+. He runs a support group at school. Even during this pandemic, he's found ways to reach students that need his help. He's done so much for the school and so much for me personally. He's a truly inspiring person who needs to be seen, but he's too humble to admit that. He's been a fan for years. He's doing his best to make a difference in my old community and I think he has a lot to say and needs to be heard well let's talk to him he's a wonderful man and a mentor to me I can talk for years about how brilliant he is I'm sure he'd appreciate it and so would I I could go on and on about how awesome he is but if you'd consider him I'd be eternally grateful I will forward you his contact info if so oh and a massive thanks for hearing me out on this thank you so much for that message we would love to chat to your teacher I say we make it happen now one last message. Craig got in touch. Loved hearing you and Dino chat. Now, this is a chat we did with Dino Fetcher about a normal heart. So go and have a listen to that if you haven't listened to it. Um, loved hearing you and Dino chat. Totally related to saying I'm not that type of gay in my teens and early 20s and rolling my eyes at overtly camp men when I'm actually quite camp myself. I love you, Craig, because we've all done it. But realise it was all the shame I had about it myself. Such a world away from now at work at Manchester University with a strong LGBT staff network and champion equality and diversity at every opportunity so that no one should apologise for who they are with a big, lovely, smiley, heart face emoji. Thank you, Craig. Quite right. There you are working at Manchester University. Three messages all about the importance in different ways of letting LGBTQ plus people and beyond anyone anyone on the diversity spectrum of any sort be celebrated uplifted by these big institutions because maybe these big institutions don't realize it but they mean a ton to us and they are a huge part of our lives we're there often more time than we are at home sometimes um depends how much you turn up anyways let's go and talk to a wonderful man what better time to be speaking to him on this anniversary he's had an incredible life i cannot wait for you to hear it all Here's Michael Cashman. 
Lord Michael Cashman, I apologise. Lord Michael Cashman. You're in Limehouse, right? Yeah, uh, just along from Ian, my, my lovely mate, Ian. Ian McKellen, no? Yeah, uh, not far from where I was, well, f- about 500 yards from where I was born and brought up. Forgive me for being a terrible gay man, but <laughs> I actually can't remember the name of the famous pub where everyone goes dancing till the small hours. You're thinking of the White Swan. Yes. The very, very famous gay pub where Jimmy from the uh, the Communards uh, used to go and where Michael Barrymore uh, came out one night and, and the next morning went and said, excuse me, last night when I came out on stage and I threw my wedding ring onto the floor, has anyone found it? Um, and, really? And, and what was interesting for me going there to this, uh, the White Swan, this gay pub was my dad when he was a young docker used to drink in there so you know the generations when they hand it on they're not quite sure what's going to happen when they hand it on that's so funny because a friend of mine's dad is a builder and my friend brought his dad down to london for the day to see him and you know his dad's a lovely man and fine with his son being gay but they went past um what's that pub on old compton street in london the very butch pub oh the, the, the comptons comptons yeah. yeah they went past comptons and his dad apparently turned and looked at all the clientele at comptons and went oh there must be a builder's merchant right here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah in, in the 80s we used to say you could tell the, the gay men going out on a saturday evening because they were the ones wearing uh, ripped jeans and boots <laughs> <laughs> yes so it was frequented by dockers and then it was frequented by people dressing like dockers. Exactly. It didn't, I don't know how I've started here, but I'll complete. Um, because I spent an evening with Cleo Rockus once. My neighbour, yeah. Your neighbour. Yeah. And she was telling me about hanging out there all the time. And for those of you who don't, anyone listening who doesn't know who Cleo Rockus is, Cleo was... Um, Kenny Everett's sidekick, most famously, would that be correct? That's absolutely right. Yes, for many years in the uh, in the television program that he had. But I often see see her on the street with her lovely mum, uh, and and I, I've met her brother. That's a great thing about being here in in Limehouse and knowing it so well. You you interact with your with your neighbours, and it, it's unlike other parts of London in that respect. You. You don't walk past each other. It's lovely. It's quite a community, right? Yeah, yes, but it, but interestingly, this this borough is one of the poorest boroughs in the country. So you switch; you can literally cross the road uh, uh, and be in being be in a housing estate like the housing estate that I grew up in uh, and lived on as a kid, uh, and you can see overcrowding with the housing and visual deprivation um, mm. and then you just glance the other way and you've got these amazing apartment blocks looming over f- from canary wharf and warehouses where men sweated and broke their limbs and their backs but are now luxury homes yes you know i i was out in the street once and um, if anyone went to school with me they always called me mickey and i heard this <laughs> this man say oi mickey mickey cashman and i turned around <laughs> And he said, "What are you doing round here?" And I said, "I said, oh, I live, I live round here." And he went, "What? You've got a bit of money, haven't you? Actor and all that, politician." I said, "Well, I suppose so." He said, 
He said, you must be insane. If you've got money, you need to move out. And that was, <laughs> that was the kind of mentality. Uh, when Paul and I bought our first home in 1983, my friend said, no, no, you, you can get a, a small place in, in Epping for that. You can get out in the country. And, but no, Mickey Cashman, I'm pleased to say, stayed here. So you never left then? There was never a period where you went away? Oh, no, I did. I did leave. When I fell in love with an amazing man when I was 16 and he was 24, uh, it was all against the law, of course. This was uh, 1967, before the change in the law. Uh, and uh, I, I moved in with him in Ealing, West London, and then kind of moved around London, uh, as you did in the 60s and the 70s. And only really moved back to the East End in the uh, late late 1970s. Did you want to get away when you moved to Ealing or you were just madly in love? Of course, you needed to get away because um, I was out to myself. I mean, I've been out to myself since the age of about eight. As people know from, from my book or reading my book, that, you know, at one point I thought, have I got it tattooed on my forehead because of some of the things I used to experience? But I think a lot of gay mm. men, in order to find themselves, move away from where their family live. Um, and especially during that time, Chris, because you had another life that was criminalized, that was illegal. And it was a life, again, as I, as I deal with in the book, that had to, that nightlight, nightlife had to be left there at night. Exchange phone numbers had to be hidden. You had to be careful that no one from your day life walked into a bar and saw you with other gay men. So, yes. so I think a lot of gay men, certainly of my generation, uh, were in a way forced to move away from their family vicinities and their immediate friends. There was a time when you really didn't want to go to those baths, which were actually very local, right? And they were full of people you knew from your childhood, but then that developed, is that right? Um, no, because during the 60s, my teens, primarily the gay bars were in the West End. Uh, mm. and, uh, and, uh, uh, and they were dives because you went downstairs. I remember the first, oh, that, that first gay bar that I went to uh, called Le, Le Deuce in Soho on, on mm. the corner of Darblay Street. And, and we, I went there, this, this friend who I'd been uh, on tour with, um, because I was I was then a young actor. When we were on tour, we used to go to the the, the back rooms of pubs where uh, the the gay crowd went. And even though it was illegal, I used to go in there because you couldn't drink until the age of twenty one. And and mm. Ian Calvin Taylor said to me, he says, "Oh, when we get back to London, he says I'm going to take you to." to pubs where you can get shagged left, right and centre and get a drink bought into the bargain. And my <laughs> God, he we went along Berwick Street. I remember it so vividly. And as we were going along Berwick Street, he was waving and calling out the names to the working women and they knew him. And we turned that corner, pressed the button, went down those stairs. The door then opened and I walked in and there were boys my own age dancing, cheek, to cheek and I thought I'd died and gone to paradise so that was my refuge there were a few gay bars gay pubs 
in the East End, but, but they were rough. And that's where you went if you were about 25, 30, so that you could handle uh, the trouble that would come through the door. But again, being a young actor, I was fortunate in that through the luck of being discovered at my secondary modern school at the age of 11, impersonating Eartha Kitt, you know, I've got Eartha Kitt to blame <laughs> for all this, or to thank. Uh, yeah, I was You're to, not the only gay man. When I met her, I'm I, I, sorry, uh, digressing, I met her and somebody said, tell her, we, we were doing a benefit for an HIV benefit, and they said, tell her. And I said, um, I said, uh, Eartha, I have to tell you, I did an impersonation of you, and I, I ended up in, playing Oliver in the West End. It started me in, on my career, and she went, oh, another queer, darling, another queer. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique. And your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And, and so I was fortunate in that the, at the age of 12, I was suddenly working in the West End of London, where I felt for the first time that I belonged. And mm. that I was in a group of people where they judged you by whether you turned up on time on whether you could do the job. Um, and yes, there were predatory men who hung around the stage door, predatory older men. And by that time, I'd learned the language. I wasn't always effective, but learned the language to deal with them. Um, but I had that other world, and I was, in that respect, very, very lucky. You were sort of transported into that world. Yeah. It's a portal of freedom that is not afforded to many, and it's it's incredibly fortunate. No, especially for a 16-year-old. You know, as I said, I knew I was, I knew I was gay. Uh, we didn't have the language then. You called yourself queer, and that's the interesting thing about language, tone, when somebody used mm. it in a derogative way, they used to go, you're queer. And if, and if you used it to self-identify, you'd say, I'm queer. <laughs> and, and, and so because I, I, I knew, um, I, um, I, I didn't want to hide it to myself. I didn't pretend and have girlfriends. Uh, I wanted to get on with it because London was beginning to swing and this, you know, met this gorgeous man and, fell in love with him and he was older than me and I chased him and eventually he surrendered. Um, and I spent nine years with him. Formative years of, of, my, of my life. Incredible. And you were saying that you knew you were gay when you were eight years old and you were this wonderfully sunny kid. Yeah. 
did you feel that you became that as soon as you knew that there was something different about you and you felt like you had to quickly make sure that you were what's the word almost like earning your keep I, I know exactly what you mean um some i think i was always when i look at the photographs there's this smile bursting out from these cracked uh, black and white photographs of these eyes looking at the world without any fear and all expectation and something rather dark happened to me when I was seven. Um, again, I deal with this honestly in the book when a young docker took terrible advantage of me. And I think it was from then that I knew I had to put on this facade so that people wouldn't see the me, the real me. And I think that's when I became the entertainer. That's when I started putting on shows for the kids and the mums and, and, and doing impersonations. Mm. And again, I remember my mum said, she said, come and dance for your Auntie Eileen. And my Auntie Eileen was my favourite aunt because she had this magic of suddenly having teeth and then no teeth. Um, and, <laughs> and she said, come and dance. And she put a, a record, a, a 45 on the, uh, the radiogram, and off I went, legs flying everywhere. And, and they were laughing and they were clapping. And I heard my mum say, I think he's one of them. Wow. And inside, I froze. I thought, they know. They know. And so I think a lot of us find ways of making them look at another aspect of ourselves so that they don't see the true part that we're trying to hide. Yes. You've spoken very honestly about a few encounters of, how would you term it, sexual abuse? Yes, sexual abuse within the industry, uh, first of all, outside the industry, and but, but for years within the industry. Yeah. I think one thing that I, I think sort of perhaps maybe starts there, but I feel like I've noticed about you throughout your life is something about constantly living in the unspoken. And there's a very heartbreaking moment in your book where you talk about coming home after that docker took advantage of you for the first time and you can't say anything to anyone and you sit in the room the corner of the room and you're just really pleased that no one's quizzing you about why why you were late and why your belt is broken is that right that's right absolutely right and to feel that that should be a victory to feel that there was a logic in a kid's head as there would be that that's a victory, mm. that you can't explain what just happened to you. I think that is the most relatable but also heartbreaking part of that, Thank right? You. But it's because you don't have the vocabulary, you don't have the language to describe what's happened to you. And also, mm. as a young working-class kid, you were brought up that you... Children should be seen and not heard. My dad used to say that to us all the time. Mm. You had to know your place and never cause trouble. And so when you start to think about, should I tell someone, you then think about the trouble. And so you decide to find that switch inside your head when it happens so that it's not happening to you. It's happening to somebody else. You were pretty cleverly tricked by a manager, right? Well, I, I went into Oliver at um, the age of 12 there in the West End and, and then I was introduced to this 
man and he said he wanted to manage me and he met my parents and he convinced my parents that I needed to go to a a, a stage school so that I'd get mm. good reports so that I, I would always get my licenses and that therefore I'd, I'd be up for good work and films and my parents went okay he said uh, but before that he said I, I, I want him to come and do some uh, a charity performance I'm putting on a charity performance at the local cinema and he'll stay with me uh, and uh, my wife and my children. And so I met him that night outside Hounslow West Tube Station. And I went with him and we went to a boarding house. And there was no wife and there were no children. And that's again when I was suddenly in a world of lies. Mm. Um, the woman, the landlady in the morning said, oh, your, your dad is so proud of you. And I thought, what? And I was, I was transported into this. And, and then when I went back home, I wanted to tell them. I wanted to tell my mum. And I knew I was going back. There was a, when you were working as an actor, you had to have a specific amount of time off every three months. And so I wasn't working that, that week in the West End. And that Friday, I was going to go and do an, meet him and do another show that Saturday. And, and I, I write about how me and my mum are sat there uh, on the hearth of the fireplace and she's poking the fire. And I'm desperately, desperately trying to find the words to tell her. And I can't. And so I go. Mm. And it went on. Uh, it went on for years, but I found ways of uh, surviving. And so the reason I wanted to write about it is because... It's not enough to be a survivor. You have to be a victor. And by talking, mm. you empower others. And if you, don't, if, if you don't own up to the past, the past will own you, especially those darker elements that you refuse to talk about. It eats you inside in some way. Yeah, and, it, uh, and for a while, it impacted on my relationships. You know, that amazing relationship, 31 years that I had with, with Paul, and I said to him, I said, you know, we've been together 31 years. He went, 31 years? That's longer than my inside leg. Go away. Um, <laughs> but early on, I looked at him and I thought, no, you can't love me because you haven't hurt me. And, and you're going to hurt me. If I love you, you'll then leave me. There was 13 years difference between us. And, mm. and so it does everything. You know, we are a mosaic. Homo sapiens, are, we're a mosaic. We're made up of all of these different colours, and that's what completes the picture. Leave out one colour, and people know, and psychologically, you know, something is missing. Your whole book is the most beautiful read, the chronicle of the most incredible life for which anyone LGBTQ plus and beyond listening, it must be very grateful for the rights they have today are down to you and the work of many other people but you know um it's a beautiful book well, you're um, very kind and you're very kind but i wanted to ask you about that moment at the hearth with your mum and she's pushing the coal around in the fire and you say that you don't want to go and she says why and you say well i think i'm going to get wet in the rain i wondered if what was going on in that conversation is that she knew what you meant but she couldn't say either. Everyone was dealing within constraints, or was I reading in the wrong way? No, I think you were reading in absolutely the right way. 
But I also knew that my mother, I sat there watching my mother, fag in one hand, as you said, poking the embers, perhaps staring into a dream that she'd never realised, that a dream that had been taken away when suddenly she was pregnant uh, out of marriage with my eldest brother, maybe not listening to me and maybe not wanting to listen to me because of what she might then have to deal with. Um, and I, I look at both, you know, th th that's why some of these moments are indelibly, well, they are, they're indelibly printed because my mum and my dad had a very difficult relationship. And I know they, they had hopes and dreams that they never, ever realised. And, um, and they had tough lives. They worked, worked so hard. Um, and, and within those moments, sat on that hearth, writing that, I, I had to make no judgment about my mum, but just record it exactly as it was, but to leave that space that there was a woman who was maybe staring at something that took her far, far away. Part of healing of any description is to understand that your parents are just people. They're not parents, actually. They're just people. <laughs> yeah. I never remembered hearing my mum and dad say to one another, I love you. Um, my dad rarely said it. He said it to his mates, I love you. <laughs> um, and I deal with a moment when he, he rang me after. I did a documentary after I left EastEnders um, about discrimination against lesbians and gay men and bisexuals. Uh, I, I didn't focus on trans then. And he, they always rang me. You say, we're proud of you, son. I'm proud of you. And my mum always used to say, especially if she's had a drink, I love you, darling. I love you. No. Anyway, the next morning he rang and Paul said, it's your dad on the phone. And, and he, he came on and he explained that he'd just been to his pub. And the landlord, he said, he said the, land, the landlord put a pint on the counter. And he said, Johnny, that's for you. Because I saw your son's documentary last night. And uh, yeah, yeah, that's for you. He said, and my dad said, so I wanted to tell you, son, yeah, I'm, I'm proud of you. And I said, yeah, yeah, you, you said so last night. And remember, my dad and I had a really, really difficult relationship. Mm -hmm. And then there was a long, long pause. And he said, I'm proud of you. And I love you. Oh. And that was the first time I remember my dad saying that he loved me because men of that generation didn't. And remembering that your, your parents are people gives you a wonderful lens with which to forgive some of the things they may have forgotten to have done mm. or forgotten to have said. 100%. Yeah. And you were talking earlier about going to Soho for the first time and how intoxicating that was mm. there was a thing called pretty policemen mm. which were policemen who used to try and get you caught for being gay it was mainly in see i knocked around soho but when we went up to earl's court brompton's hotel it was then called and there was a pub called the colhern which was where the leather crowd used to go and it was outside these pubs that you would come out and there'd be men you, you generally knew there were police you were tipped off they had split jeans and tight, tight T-shirts. And they would entice you to go up and, and chat them up because that was a criminal offence. Wow. You would be arrested 
uh, for soliciting for an immoral purpose. Wow. Procuring uh, an act of indecency. And, and, and when the law was changed, when they decriminal, partially decriminalized uh, consenting sex between men over 21 in private, and the definition of privacy was very, very strict. It couldn't be a friend's house. It couldn't be anywhere where the public might be, so it couldn't be a hotel. When they changed that, and there was an age of consent of 21, the arrests actually went up after 1967 because they used soliciting and procuring uh, as the means to arrest you. And of course, the other thing was that um, you could, if you had certain jobs, you could be blackmailed. People... It might be hard for some people to re- to think and, re- and recall that then we could be sacked, denied employment, uh, kicked out of our homes, kicked out of a restaurant, a bar, a pub, whatever. There was no protection against discrimination whatsoever. Mm. And what makes me so angry is that some women and men who lived through that period are now trying to do that to trans women and trans men and trans teenagers. They have learned absolutely nothing. Yes. Creating a kind of apartheid. Within the LGBTQ+. Yes, yes. This is what I find so absurd that some feminists have turned around and say, and they say, you can't be a woman because you haven't got the scars that I have got. Well, I'm sorry, I fight the battles so that other people don't have to get wounded. My philosophy in life is stand in the shoes of the other. Mm. Stand in the shoes of that trans woman trying to lead her life. Imagine her day and the stigmatization and the misrepresentation and the stereotyping and the hate that she faces. Stand in her shoes. And if you wouldn't want it to happen to you, how dare you allow it to happen to another. Stand in the shoes of that woman with her children on the Mediterranean before she gets into that leaky boat to seek refuge. What would you want for her? And that way, we change the world continuously for the better. Uh, And that that hasn't happened, Chris. You know, progress on liberal issues isn't one single unbroken line. We need to recall that in the 1930s, gay men in particular from the United Kingdom went to Berlin so that they could have freedom. Mm. They could be themselves. Mm. It was a very few years later that that dramatically and radically changed. And that's why we have to defend not only what we have, but we have to defend what others need. And the simple concept of equality is you have the same rights, the same protections of the law, and if anyone transgresses, we deal with the transgressor, and we don't dress up a minority as those who pose the threat. How much fun are you having listening to him? It's end of part one. Part two, it's even better than part one. Go to your feed and click part two now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Powered by Spirit Studios.